Thank you very much, Sally, for leading us. Welcome back, Dorothea. Welcome home. And it's great to see Pat. You're very welcome, Pat. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, could I invite you to turn to John chapter 19? It's page 1087 uh, in the Bibles in the pews. It would be really handy if you could see a copy of John 19, uh, just as we work our way through this. We are picking up from where we left off uh, last Sunday night. But that song that we've just sung uh, really captures my hope for these next few moments. Uh, that once again, as we look upon the cross of Christ, that we'll react, that we'll respond. And in the words we've just sung, we've said that we're humbled by God's mercy and that we're broken inside. And really that's my hope this evening in a sense that as we continue our journey towards Easter, that as we once again look at the cross of Christ, that it will provoke that type of response within our hearts. And in the second half of John 19, I I want us to sort of think about the reaction of ten different people. Two groups of four, and then a two. But before we get to the 442 formation, I can't get certain images out of my head, Uh, let's look at how the rest of the trial of Jesus was handled. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember how the Roman governor Pilate had reached a point of cynically saying, what is truth? And even though, and this this is ironic, even though truth was standing staring him in the face, Pilate opted for the politically correct thing to do. And so he sends Jesus for a severe beating. And as part of this horrendous experience, Jesus has to endure a kind of cruel coronation parody at the hands of Roman soldiers where they take a crown of thorns and thrust it upon his head and they drape a purple robe around his shoulders, which is the color of royalty, And then they offer him some mock homage. Hail, King of the Jews. And just to add insult to injury, they repeatedly slap him in the face. And I'm sure many of us have watched, if we were able to, The Passion of the Christ, the 2004 Mel Gibson film. And for me, it was these particular scenes. These scenes of sort of torture and ridicule and humiliation that I found it particularly difficult to sit through. But Pilate then brings Jesus back out, it says in verse 4. And he brings Jesus back out to the Jewish crowd and he presents them to them who were clearly going nowhere until they had seen this thing through. And I think Pilate was hoping that whenever the crowd saw what the Roman soldiers had done to Jesus, whenever the crowd actually saw his disfigured body, and saw him wearing this grotesque headdress, that somehow the crowd would let it go at that point. That they would sort of back down. They might even experience and feel some pity for Jesus. But no. The intensity or intensity of emotion, the blood lust, and the levels of hatred only seem to escalate at this point whenever Jesus is brought back out And the crowd respond by shouting, crucify him. 
And Pilate then re-emphasizes that he can find absolutely no basis for a charge against this man. Which again highlights the reality that we thought about last week, that Pilate actually knows what he should do. I mean, he knows I've got no basis of a charge against him. I should opt for the right thing to do, but instead he opts for what is PC. And then the Jews come back at Pilate in verse 7. And it's at this point that they reveal why Jesus has enraged and infuriated them to such an extent. It's not just that Jesus is seen as a king. That's not really the issue for them. It's a problem for them, but it's not really the issue. The issue is, according to verse 7, because this man claims to be the Son of God. And that's what they find so deeply offensive and actually blasphemous. Now, whenever Pilate hears this title, whenever Pilate hears Jesus being referred to as the Son of God, it says his fear levels get higher. And so immediately he asks for another behind-the-scenes conference with Jesus on his own. And he takes him back away from the crowds and he says to Jesus, where do you come from? Like what planet are you from? And it's at this point that Jesus opts for silence. And I'm convinced the reason that Jesus opts for silence here is because he knew that Pilate couldn't cope with the answer. That Pilate couldn't handle the truth. Imagine it. Whenever asked, where are you from? If Jesus was to say, well, in the beginning, I was with God. And I was God. And then I took on flesh. This flesh. And I was born of a virgin. There's just no way Pilate would have been able to handle that. And so in response to the silence of Jesus... Pilate tells him, do you know something? I have the power to free you, but I also have the power to crucify you. And Jesus can't hold his tongue any longer. Because Pilate's comment provokes a response. And Jesus says, you have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. In other words, Pilate can only do to Jesus what God allows him to do, permits him to do, And wants him to do. And again that takes us back to something I tried to highlight last week. That even in the midst of all that's going wrong. Or all that appears to be going wrong. All the injustice. All the twists and turns. As Jesus gets pulled from pillar to post. From Jewish council to Roman palace. It all appears that everything is just so haphazard. But actually what this affirms is that God is in control. Total, complete control and his divine plan is just rolling out before everybody's eyes in the second half of verse 11 if you have a look at it it's a tricky bit because who is the one who handed Jesus over to Pilate is that Judas and if according to verse 11 he is guilty of a greater sin does that actually mean there are degrees of sin? I'm not sure. 
And that's for another time. And John then tells us that from this point on, Pilate tries to set Jesus free. In other words, he tries to do the right thing. But the Jews are not letting up. And no matter what Pilate says, they keep coming back to their central demand. Crucify him, Pilate. Crucify him. And finally, Pilate buckles under the pressure and he just gives in. And for the next 22 verses, John records the actual crucifixion. For 22 verses, he tells us about the death of Jesus. And his telling of the story is unique. It's different from the other gospel writers. It's regarded as distinctive. And maybe the reason for that is because John is the only disciple who was actually there. The only disciple who was in talking distance of his dying friend. Because verse 26 says that the disciple whom Jesus loved was standing nearby. And as we know from the rest of scripture, that beloved disciple was John. So in other words, this is a personal account. Maybe far more personal than Matthew or Mark or Luke's account. And therefore, what we have here is John sharing specific information that has left a lasting impression on him. And so in verse 18, he just begins by saying, and they crucified Jesus. And what strikes me about that, and what I find so interesting about that is that he spares us the detail. He doesn't elaborate. Lots of people have tried to. But the gospel writers, and particularly John, doesn't elaborate. And maybe that's because no words could adequately describe this horrendous execution method. As one writer at the time called it a most cruel and terrible penalty, inescapable of description by any word, for there is none fit to describe it. And as I say, I know lots of people, whenever they come to describing the crucifixion of Jesus, try to become all emotional about it. And yet for me, there is something in the fact that the gospel writers just say, and he was crucified. And so John says that, and then after referring to a controversial saying that Pilate has fastened to the cross that really winds the Jews up, John then homes in or draws our attention to our first two groups of people. Two very different groups of four. And the first four are men. And they're Roman soldiers who, having just crucified Jesus, have started to play dice or cast lots to see who gets his seamless garment, rather than rip it into four pieces. And what stands out for me as I read this and as I think about this is their total indifference to the cross. Their complete, cold-hearted reaction. Against the background of noise of human beings fighting for their lives, gasping for their breaths, dying a slow and horrific death, they play. And they just get on with looking after their own interests. And therefore, the death of Jesus doesn't register with them doesn't register as being different 
certainly not significant and definitely not important. And I suppose there is a sense in which that response and that attitude is still reflected today. That every year as we approach Easter and as we as a church and as Christians attempt to bring the cross back into focus, lots of people just simply get on with life and play games and look after their own interests, totally unaware or totally unaffected by what happened on the first Good Friday and how it applies to them, relates to them, connects to them. But in the midst of this rather bleak scene of Jesus dying and people just playing games and looking after their own interests, John injects a ray of hope because he says, do you know something? See what's happening here? It's not unexpected. Verse 24. In fact, it fulfills a prediction that was made approximately a thousand years earlier. From Psalm 22. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garments. And John goes out of his way here to underscore the fact that the way Jesus died and every single event surrounding his death, it was all predicted in the Old Testament. He does it here in verse 24. He does it three more times before you get to the end of chapter 19. And what John wants the readers of his gospel, at least those who are prepared to engage with it with an open mind, what he wants them to realize is that the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah were fulfilled in Jesus. And it's actually reckoned that Jesus fulfilled something like 300 Old Testament prophecies during his lifetime, including 29 of them on the day he died. And what this does, and I'm convinced this was part of John's intention, is that it proves the reliability, the credibility, and the identity of Jesus beyond any reasonable doubt. That is for those who are prepared to engage with this with an open mind. And for those of us who are Christians, the very fact of these details that were prophesied about Jesus years before he came and died should encourage us and strengthen us in our faith. And John then takes us on to this second group of four at the cross. And this time it's four women. Verse 25. It's Jesus' mum. It's his aunt. It's Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And in many ways, they stand in sharp contrast to the four men. It's like four soldiers, four saints. Their hearts are not cold. Their hearts are breaking. They're not tuned out to the cries of Christ. They're tuned into the suffering of a son and a nephew and a friend and a master. They're not playing games to decide who gets his last earthly possessions. They're standing in silent reverence, hanging on to every single last words that he is able to say. And the difference in attitude and demeanor between the first and second group is striking. And thankfully, there still are people today, and many here, 
who more readily position themselves and align themselves with the four women rather than the four men. People who are here and you're not indifferent to the suffering and death of Jesus. You're not left cold-hearted as you reflect upon a broken body and shed blood. There are people here who stand or who kneel in quiet reflection at the cross and continue to hang on to every word that Jesus speaks. I suppose the question I just want to ask is where do you stand this Easter? Who do you position yourself with? And John then takes us to the final moments in verse 28. And again, what John is doing here, he's helping us to understand, listen, those of you who are moved by this scene, please realize that Jesus is not a helpless victim. He's not a rabbit caught in the headlights. He's not taken by surprise. He knows what's going on here. In fact, as it says there, knowing all that was now completed and so that scripture would be fulfilled. So Jesus knows what's happening here. And in order to fulfill scripture, he says, do you know something? I'm thirsty. And he then drinks from a sponge soaked in wine vinegar, which takes us back to the Psalms. They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And it's at this point that then Jesus utters those three words. Three words that reveal his mission's being completed. It is finished, described by someone as the greatest words ever uttered by the greatest man who ever lived. Only three words and yet heavily pregnant with meaning. And it's a triumphant and a victorious statement where Jesus unambiguously declares that what he came to do has now been accomplished. But what did Jesus come to do? Well, there are three things for definite. The first is he came to do the Father's will. And earlier in John's Gospel, he said, you know something? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to do what? To finish his work. The task's now being completed. So Jesus said, it's finished, Father. I've done your will. And secondly, to bring glory to God. And in his own words from the prayer of John 17, two chapters earlier, prayed earlier on probably in this day, what does Jesus say? I've brought you glory on earth. How have I brought you glory on earth? By completing the work you gave me to do. It's finished, Father. And thirdly, he came to take away the sin of the world. And in Greek, and I am no Greek scholar, but in Greek I understand that this phrase, it is finished, literally means paid in full. And therefore, as Jesus takes his last breath, he knew or he believes beyond any shadow of a doubt that he has now paid the full price for the sins of the world. It's finished, Father. I've died in their place. And so there's no sense of defeatism in this cry. As some have claimed, this is not a cry of, I'm finished. This is an explicit confirmation that says, do you know something? Mission has been accomplished. And at various points during this essential word series, 
We have made reference to hints of hope and rumors of redemption that keep, coming, keep cropping up. For those who are visiting, what we're doing as a church is we're going right through the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We've got up to Judges. We've taken a break in order to concentrate on the Easter story. But as we have been journeying from Genesis right up to Judges so far, there have been hints of hope and rumors of redemption. But you know something here on this Good Friday, as Jesus declares it is finished, there are no longer hints or rumors. Everything needed for our salvation has been realized. The cup of God's wrath has been drained of every last drop. That was God's will for Jesus. Last week he said, Father, if it's your will, let this cup be taken from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. What was that cup? It was to drink the cup of God's wrath that was to be poured out on every single one of us. But Jesus drank it. So, Father, I've done your will. The wages of sin have been paid in full. Rescue, liberation are now fully available. There's nothing we can, there's nothing we need to contribute to what Jesus has done. It is finished. Hope and redemption are now ours beyond our wildest dreams. And then John says, in the end of verse 30, With that, having said, it's finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And I want us to notice the emphasis there. Jesus gave up his spirit. It wasn't taken from him. That's why, as Gordon reminded us this morning, Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. Nobody takes it from me. I give it. And the Sabbath day was approaching fast at this point. And the Jewish leaders, and this is interesting, They don't want the bodies left hanging on the cross until Saturday because they want to be free to worship. And so they say to Pilate, Pilate, please will you break the legs of the three people that have been crucified this afternoon so that we can get their bodies down. Because breaking their legs, as you know, made it impossible for them to push up using their lower limbs in order that they can facilitate their breathing. And so the Roman soldiers, and maybe it's the same four, I don't know, but they came. And because the two criminals on either side of Jesus weren't dead as yet, they snapped their legs. But whenever they came to Jesus, they found that he had already passed away. But just to be sure, one of the soldiers sticks a spear in Jesus' side. And again, John's keen that we would see in both these details that they happened or they didn't happen in the case of his legs so that scripture would be fulfilled. Verses 36 and 37, not one of his bones will be broken and they will look on the one they have pierced. Again, what John's saying, listen, Jesus is not only who he claimed to be, but Jesus is exactly the one who was predicted to come. And so his body's removed from the cross. But instead of being taken to a common grave for criminals, which is probably where the other two were laid or dumped the rest, the body of Jesus is taken by two men. And here's the last two in our 442 formation. And the two men are Joseph, who John describes as a secret disciple. And the other one is Nicodemus, who is the man who came to see Jesus on one occasion under the cover of night. And they take his body. 
And they prepare it for burial. And they lay it to rest in a brand new tomb. And for me, this is an intriguing aspect of this story. Because here we have two men who for years have been secretly intrigued by Jesus and his teaching. But whenever they are confronted by the cross, their commitment is taken to a whole new level. The suffering and death of Jesus drove Nicodemus and Joseph from closet Christianity into open and public identification with Jesus. They were now firmly positioned and aligned with the four women. No longer fearful. No more keeping their heads down and saying as little as possible. No more blending in with the majority. Because the cross and the death And the suffering of Jesus had stirred something within these two men. It sparked a courage that wasn't there before. It caused a love for Jesus to be expressed tangibly. And it led to active surrender. And for Joseph, what that meant was that he approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And again, those are just phrases we read without really understanding that that took guts That took courage. This was a break from the norm. And not only that, but he laid him in his family's tomb. That's a detail Matthew adds. And that would have spoken volumes to everybody. And then there's Nicodemus, who according to the text there in John 19, brings 75 pounds of spices. And those who know about these things know that's extravagant. Absolutely extravagant expression of love. It was costly. And so in these actions, Nicodemus and Joseph are firmly placing themselves once and for all in the circle of Jesus' true disciples. And so whenever you and I come to Easter again, and whenever we're able to see the cross For what it is. The sheer scale of the love. The sacrifice. The hope. The sense of completion. Then it seems according to this. That it has the ability to propel us to a new place. To awaken certain emotions within us. To stir us into action. To deepen our love and intensify our commitment. And therefore it's my hope and prayer. That like Joseph And Nicodemus, this Easter, as we once again look upon the cross where Jesus died for us, that we will renew and reaffirm and republicize our commitment. And actually we will sing that line, well once again, Jesus, you know something, because you've done so much for me, once again I pour out my life for you. And I don't know what that actually means for you this Easter. What does it mean for you to pour out your life for Jesus? Let's pray as we close. Father, again we come before you as a group of people and give you thanks for your word, for the truth of it, for the power of it, for what it tells us, for what it reminds us about. 
And Father, this evening we do give you thanks for the cross. For the power of the cross. For what it signifies for so many people sitting in this room this evening. That they are humbled by your mercy. And broken inside. And God, I would ask that we would not be indifferent. That we would not be cold hearted. But that we would be people who sit and reflect silently and reverently on what was accomplished there for us. And so once again as we look upon the cross where Jesus died. That Father in response we would say once again we pour out our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.